they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome to the Bible with the Barbers. My wife is doing babysitting duty, and I'm filling in for her. I love pinching hitting for my wife. I'm excited because we're going to talk about a great topic in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. It's a brief summary of the Ten Commandments. And we know that 1 John says, The love of God consists in this, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I mention this because people today in our modern society say, Oh, those Ten Commandments, they're way too hard to keep. But they don't realize the Bible says they're not, as long as what you're doing is you're living in the state of grace. You're trying to live out your faith. God will give you the graces to handle all of that. And I wanted to mention this, that how are we to live? Ten Commandments gives us that. Taking life as it comes without thinking about it? No. Are we to conform passively to the environment? That's what the world wants. You know, don't bother anybody. You want to take care of the fashions and laws? No. That Basically, what we're trying to do, we are not content to be impersonal and mediocre and perhaps also full of shortcomings, dishonest and bad. Are we uh, to impose a rule, a law on ourselves? God's law. That's when we're happy. Are we to demand ourselves a style of life, a moral discipline, perfection, or can we live without scruples? in the easiest, most pleasant way. And if love is the essential qualification of a moral life, which it is, how are we to understand it? As it is affirmation of selfishness or profess of altruism. In the gospel, and this is right taken from St. Paul VI, he said this in March of 1970. He said, in his gospel, Christ teaches us by word and example how we must live. So that's why Bible with the Barbers is a blueprint for how we should live. And with the inner help of his holy graces and the exterior assistance of his community, the church, he makes it possible for us to carry out his bidding. Let no one take fright for the perfection of which we are called by our Christian elect does not complicate and aggregate life, even if it requires us to observe many practical norms. Calculate rather to help us in our faithfulness in our fullness that we make it more difficult. So Pope Paul VI says we have all moreover sufficient knowledge of this law. The most important precept which we find enunciated is in the Ten Commandments. And obedience to these laws make us men and Christians. In this present day of confusion this was written in 1970, and believe me, there was a lot of confusion out there in 1970, like it is today. This kind of reminds me of the 1970s. He says, in this present confusion, the notion of good and evil, licit and illicit, just and unjust, and demoralizing spread of crime, immorality, we will do well to preserve and deepen the sense of natural law, that is, justice of integrity and of the good that upright reason inspires continually with our consciousness. So 
you know, moral relativism. You know, my truth, your truth. No, no. So I want to cover some topic now, a biblical view of conscience. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of man. There, he alone, with God, whose voice echoes in its depths, in the depths of his consciousness, man detects a law, which he does not impose upon himself, but which holds him to obedience, always summoning him to love good and avoid evil. Did you hear that? Love good and avoid evil. And the voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to his heart, do this, shun that. For man has in his heart a law written by God. To obey it is the very dignity of man. According to it, he will be judged. See, you know where I got that from? Vatican II, Pastoral Constitution of the Church in the Modern World, number 16. So what is the function of of a conscience, a biblical view. How how does it function? God does not speak directly and immediately to everyone in an infallible form, obviously. That would give rise to personal interpretation and judgment, to subjectivism, and finally, to error. No. God manifests his law to each of us through reason, illuminated by faith. We've been saying that for so long on the Terry and Jesse show. Therefore, it is the duty of conscience to know this teaching and to make it its own judgment and behavior to conform to it. Only in this way does it answer God's voice. The magisterium does not take away the place of conscience. It illuminates it. It forms it. See, a well-formed conscience is the church teaching. You don't have a well-formed conscience, for example, if you say abortion is okay. No. It, the, the magisterium of the church illuminates it, the conscience, forms it, and perfects it. To act according to an upright conscience, to make one's own personal judgment conform to the magisterium of the church, and not to claim to adapt later to one's own wishes. That's what's happening right now. Oh, it's my personal interpretation. I feel this is good. Well, that feelings have nothing to do with it. Anyone who sincerely seeks the teachings of the church will find it easily since it is to spread rapidly and amply today. Once it is known, it's necessary to accept it in docility and put it into practice with your loyalty, without interpretations, without reservation, without looking for a way to defend one's own judgment and do what is most agreeable to us, eluding the commandments of God. See, it's objective truth. These commandments are objectively are true. So here's another question. Does a person commit a fault if he acts within an erroneous conscience? This archbishop says that one only one who is in spite of his efforts does not succeed in getting to know this teaching does not <clears throat> commit a fault if he acts according to his conscience, even though erroneously. This, however, does not authorize anyone to imitate him. Only error through fault 
of one's own absolute ignorance do not entail sin, but they do not change the law. So, you know, the person has to know what they're doing is sinful. These are the teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, this is important to know because we can participate in that sin when we don't inform people of the truths of God's commandments. For example, we don't stand up for life. It's a sin of omission. We need to stand up for life. So what are these commandments of God? Let's go through them real quick. Number one, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three, remember to keep holy the Lord's day. You notice the first three are all about God. Now here comes the fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not steal. Number eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. This is taken from the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 17. Now, can the question comes, can the Ten Commandments of God be observed? You know, people, like I said, oh, no, that's too hard. Are you kidding me? He said, yes, they are obliged to be kept in the commandments of God because they are laid out to us by him, God, who is supreme master, who revealed them. And they are indicated by our nature and our sound reason. So what I want to do now is take, and we're not going to get through all 10 commandments, but I want to start off with the first commandment. What is the first commandment? Again, first commandment, you shall not have strange gods before me. And this is taken right from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord God then shall serve, and by his name shall you swear. You shall not follow other gods, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what are we obligated to do for the, the first commandment? How does this implement in our life? These are practical questions that we should handle. Again, you don't hear this kind of talk very often. The Ten Commandments? I thought they were the Ten Suggestions. No! They really, this is by our happiness of fulfilling God's will and following His commandments, that's how we get to be happy. And so I'm going to give what we're obliged to do by the first commandment. In practical terms, you're listening to the Bible with the Barbers. Mary will be back next week. She's doing babysitting duty. And this is Terry Barber. And I am just honored to be here to talk about the Ten Commandments because I think our world thinks of the Ten Suggestions. And I'm hoping that you enjoy it. I would even go to your catechism of the Catholic Church and you can look at those Ten Commandments on your own and study those because it's really critical for us to be followers of Christ, to keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments. I, lay, I say it on Terry and Jesse, I'll say it now. I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, I'd be a billionaire. You're listening to The Bible with the Barbers on Virgin, most powerful radio. Stay with us, family.
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to the Bible with the Barbers. We're taking a world biblical view of life. What a novel idea. I was mentioning the first commandment and asking why are we obliged to do so uh, uh, to you know implement the first commandment. Well, by the first commandment we are obliged to love God above all things and adore him. What a novel idea to the world. You see, the world has no clue to this. To adore God means to render him the worship due to him as our sovereign creator and lord, avoiding the sins of adultery and sacrilege. So the world hears that and goes, are you kidding me? How archaic. But what is adultery? Adultery is giving to a creature the supreme honor due to God alone. Dietrich von Hildebrand, a philosopher, said that that's the world's biggest problem. What is it? They're worshiping man rather than God. Secularism. That's what it is. It's the kind of practical adultery whereby man is considered the purpose and goal of all human activity. Does that describe us in 2022? Absolutely. So what's a sacrilege? Sacrilege is the abuse of a person, place, or thing consecrated to God in his service. Like they stole that tabernacle out in Texas. That was a sacrilege. Reparation needs to be made. Atonement. In other words, ways we can fail to render God the honor due to him. We would give God a false honor if we place too much trust in the multiplication of external practices without, check this out, eternal devotion. That's superstition. Oh yeah, just say these prayers, you know, without any, just, it's like superstitious, wear this. No, we don't. We would dishonor God if we were to attribute to creatures powers which belong to God alone. By believing in horoscopes, dreams, crystal gazing, and the like, by consulting spiritualists, by the use of magic, by Satanism, which is an invocation of the devil. Yeah, all that. How do we worship God? It's the Mass. We worship God with public and private prayer and acts of faith, hope, and charity. Now the question comes, what's faith? Well, I'll tell you what faith is. By an act of faith, we believe all that God has revealed on his word because he can neither deceive nor be deceived. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he will reward those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Remember what I mentioned regarding asking God for more faith every day. Your faith will be weak if you don't do that. It'll be strong if you ask Jesus Christ for more faith every day. Do that, please. And the the program was a success if people will do that. So how do we live our faith? Well, I wrote a book, How to Share Your Faith with Anyone, right? (laughs) First, we live our faith by studying our religion, by making frequent acts of faith, and by showing faith in good actions. We live our faith, secondly, by avoiding whatever 
uh, endangers it, right? Such as like bad companions. Remember John? Remember John Vianney says, "Show me your friends, and I'll tell you who you are." Hang with the right people. Tell that to the kids. Reading of bad literature, pride of mind and heart. These can lead to denial of some of or all of the truths of faith, indifference in the practice of the faith. How do we show faith in action? Good question. We show faith in action by bringing the gospel spirit into every aspect of our life. I call that living in the presence of God, especially to our relations with our fellow man. We thus witness to Christ and contribute to extending the kingdom of God and building a mere human world by living our faith. Question, what is hope? Hope is a lively trust that God will assist us in our daily trials and temptations. That's right. Giving us all the graces necessary to our eternal salvation. And thus, he will reward our efforts with peace, happiness, and eternal life with him. See, the world is saying fear, fear, fear. No, hope in God, trust in God. So what do we base our hope on? Right? It's a great question to tell the world. Say, what do you base your trust on? We base our hope on the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Bottom line, end of story. A strong hope in God will save us from the sins of presumption and despair by trusting more in God's mercy than in our own strength and never despairing of eternal salvation. Well, the world's got all kinds of suicides going on. They don't get that. We need to show them that the hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the next world, in heaven. So what is charity? Wow. Charity is the love of God and the love of one's neighbor who is created to the image of God. Charity points out a true disciple of Christ. Charity. Those people right now who want to see Roe versus Wade continue, out of charity, we're praying for their conversion. That's charity. How do we grow in love for God? We grow in love for God by avoiding sin. Remember, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments. That's the bottom line. We grow in love for God by avoiding sin and by making frequent acts of love, by fervently receiving the sacraments, by practicing virtue, and meditating on the mysteries of faith. That's really important to have that meditation. Now the next question that comes in, you like this format? I like it. It's how I was learning the faith when I was a younger man. Question and answers. How can we express real Christian love for our neighbor? We can express real Christian love for our neighbor by avoiding whatever can harm his spiritual or temporal warfare or by performing the spiritual and temporal works of mercy as often as possible. Can you get it? Man, that's, wow. Who is my neighbor? The neighbor is one who's in need, right? Someone who asked Jesus, he replied, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell prey to robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and then went off leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. He saw him but continued on. Likewise, there was a Levite who came 
the same way. He saw him and went on. But a Samaritan who was journeying along came on and was moved by pity at the sight. He approached him, dressed his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He then hoisted him up on his own beast and brought him to an inn where he cared for him. The next day, he took out two silver pieces, gave them to the innkeeper with the request. Look after him, and if there's any further expense, I will repay you on my way back. And the Bible says, which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the man who fell in with the robbers? The answer came, the one who treated him with compassion. Jesus said to him, then go and do the same. That's taken from Luke chapter 10, verse 30 to 37. Now here's a question as a biblical worldview. It says, what's the difference between adoration and veneration? I used to teach this in the high school class. I remember doing this. Adoration is the worship we give to God alone as an infinitely holy and supreme being. And veneration is the honor we give to the Blessed Virgin as the Mother of God and to the angels and saints as special friends of God. It's right in your Baltimore Catechism. Why do we honor the Blessed Virgin Mary in a special way? That question comes right after that. The Virgin Mary is acknowledged and honored as being truly the Mother of God. She is also the mother of the members of Christ's body, the Church. How does the Catholic Church honor Mary, the Mother of God? The Catholic Church honors the Mary, the Mother of God, with a special type of veneration in her liturgical and devotional prayers and especially encourages the faithful to pray, to imitate and love the Blessed Virgin Mary. See how these questions just flow? This is how people gain knowledge of their faith. That's how I did it. That's why I'm doing it right now. We need to go back to this. What does the church, what, what, why does the church honor the saints? Great question. The church honors the saints because, number one, they are chosen friends of God. By honoring them, we honor God himself. Number two, because by the example of their lives, they encourage us to grow in faith, hope, and love. Next question. Why does the church honor the angels? Right? The church honors the angels because they consistently adore the Trinity. Because they are God's special messengers to assist human beings on the path of salvation. I always say the unemployment rate for guardian angels is way too high. Put them to work. What? Yes. Now, in venerating, in venerating relics and sacred images, do we pray to or do we adore them? Check this out. We do not pray or adore relics and sacred images, but we honor and pray to the person who they represent. Just like that picture in your wallet of your wife or your kids, you don't worship that picture. You honor them with that picture. And I want to share the witness of St. Stephen. St. Stephen was a man filled with grace and power who worked great wonders and signs among the people. 
certain members of the so-called Synagogue of Romans. This is right from Acts chapter 6, so you know it. They would undertake the engage Stephen in debate, but they proved no match for the wisdom and spirit which he spoke. They persuaded some men to take the charge that they had heard him speaking blasphemies against Moses and of God. And in this way, they incited the people, the elders and the scribes. All together, they confronted him, seized him, and led him off to the Sanhedrin. You remember that reading in the Acts? Those who listened to Stephen's words, they were stung to the heart. They ground their teeth in anger at him. Stephen, meanwhile, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked to the sky above and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the God's right hand. Look, he exclaimed. I can see an opening in the sky and the Son of Man standing in God's right hand. That reading I'll let you finish because it's powerful from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, verse 8 through 12. You're listening to the Bible with the Barbers. We like reading from the Bible because it is our love book. It's our book to get to heaven. Stay with us, family. We'll be back with more on the Bible with the Barbers. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back. Mary's babysitting. I'm filling in for her today. I've got questions on my phone. I give my phone number, my cell number out on the radio. I don't think there's anybody else that does that, but I do. 661-972-7872. Text me a question. Uh, One of the questions came up and said, I once spoke to my husband's uncle about abortion. I told him how it's against the Ten Commandments. His response was, Jesus never said a word about abortion. Well, what Jesus said is the fifth commandment, you shall not kill, and that is thou shall not murder innocent life. So I would tell your uncle that uh, so he's on the board and to say that uh, just because Jesus didn't use the word abortion, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with not killing innocent life that that is innocent life so there you go if you have another question text me at 661-972-7872 all right man's call to communion with god man and woman the root now this is really right from vatican II. the root reason for human dignity lies in man's call to communion with god from the very circumstances of his origin man is already invited to converse with God. <clears throat> For man would not exist were he not created by God's love. God stopped thinking about you, you'd cease to exist. So you're created by God's love and consistently preserved by it. And he cannot live fully according to these truths unless he freely acknowledges the love and devotes himself to the Creator. That's the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, number 19. Now, here's something from the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation from Vatican II. The obedience of faith, Romans 13, is to be given to God who reveals an obedience by which man commits his whole self freely to God, offering the full submission of intellect and will. So beautiful, right? Intellect and will to God who reveals 
and freely assenting to the truth revealed by him. To make this act of faith the grace of God and the interior help of the Holy Spirit must proceed and assist, moving the heart and turning to God, opening the eyes of the mind and giving joy and ease to everyone, to assenting to the truth and believing it, to bring about an ever deeper understanding of the revelation the same Holy Spirit constantly brings to faith into its completion by his gifts. So now I'd like to move to the second commandment. This is so fundamental, biblical knowledge. What is the second commandment? You, the second commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is right from the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. For the Lord will not leave unpunished him who takes his name in vain. Whenever I hear someone using God's name in vain, I make reparation. Gee, praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. Because reparation needs to be made. It's an offense. It's against the second commandment. So what does the second commandment oblige us to do? Well, it obliges us always to speak reverently of God and of the Blessed Virgin and the angels and the saints. What else does the second commandment require of us? Well, to be truthful in taking oaths and faithful in fulfilling vows. Oh, why should we speak respectfully of holy persons, places, and things? We should speak respectfully because these things, they're consecrated to God. And may the words of sacred scripture ever be used in a bad or worldly sense. No, the words, and people have, they blaspheme using the Bible. Sacred scripture may never be used in a bad or worldly sense. Neither should it be ridiculed or even used for jokes and given any other meaning other than what we believe God intended. For example, there are people who are in the church, priests, who say the Bible in uh, St. Paul's letters says, you know, it condemns homosexuality. That particular priest, Father Martin, needs prayers because that's, that's against the commandments because he's trying to change what God has put in the Word of God. You're trying to be a higher official than the written Word of God. You don't want to do that, Father Martin. Repent, please. We want you to get to heaven. Now, what is profanity? Profanity is the irreverent use of the name of God, Christ or saints, through impatience, just surprise, or even habit. It can also include the use of coarse or immodest expressions. You know what I'm talking about. Now, we went back to the oath. What's an oath? An oath is a declaration before God that what we say is true. Remember when we go up to court, so help me God, you know, you tell the truth, nothing but the truth? Yep. What conditions make an oath lawful? Well, the conditions which make an oath lawful are, remember, sufficient reason for taking an oath. Number two, conviction that we speak the truth. Number three, that the intention to take the oath is not sinful. For example, if you're taking an oath for Freemasonry, that would be sinful. 
When may an oath be taken? An oath may be taken when it concerns the glory of God, the good of our neighbor, our own personal good. For example, you join the Knights of Columbus. You do an oath to them. You, you say, I'm going to follow the teachings of Christ. Great. Is it unlawful oath or a vow binding? An unlawful oath or a vow is not binding. Such oaths or vows are not to be taken, and the fulfillment of them is sinful. So, no, you made a bad vow to rob a bank. No, it's sinful. What is perjury? We hear that about in courts. Perjury is the calling upon God to bear witness to a lie. Yeah. Perjury is also committed when while under oath, one confirms with certainty something which is unknown or doubtful. What is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is any word, thought, or action which shows contempt for God. The Blessed Virgin Mary, the angels, the saints, our religion. What two conditions are necessary for blasphemy to occur? You don't get this too often, do you? You get you got wave, Terry, you're giving me some good information. Well, two conditions necessary for blasphemy to occur are knowledge of God and the sacred, deliberate contempt for the same. Is cursing going on in our world today? You bet it is. Cursing is calling down on evil on some person, place, or thing. It is the cursing of animals or um, inanimate objects sinful? You bet it is. The cursing of animals or inanimate objects is sinful only because the lack of virtue shown in uncontrolled anger or impatience. You know what? Go to confession. Yeah, get that resolved. Is cursing a, a cursing a man with moral evil sinful? Are you going to curse Adolf Hitler? Yes, to curse a, a man with moral evil is always sinful, according to the decree of intent and the wishing of the spiritual of the evil. These are hardcore teachings, aren't they? I'm not sugarcoating anything. No, the Bible's very clear. Is cursing a man with physical evil always sinful? To curse a man with physical evil is always sinful unless the intention is for the man's own or other spiritual well-being. To do so out of malice is always sinful. And a seriousness depends on the evil intended. What is a vow? Yeah, we've heard of vows. A vow is a free and deliberate promise to make to God by which a person binds himself under pain of sin to do something which is especially pleasing to God. Now, I can go on and on with more of the vows of religious vows, but I won't. I will say this. I want to read, because it's Bible with the Barbers, from Job chapter 2. Second trial. Once again, the sons of God came to the present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came to them. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming the earth and patrolling it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? And that there is no one on earth like him, 
faultless and upright, fearing God and avoiding evil, he still holds fast to the innocence, although you incited him against him to ruin to ruin um, him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has will be given to him for his life. But now put forth your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and surely will be blasphemed in your face. And the Lord said to Satan, He is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan, so that Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with severe boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a post pot shot to scrape himself. And as he sat among the ashes, then his wife said to him, Are you still holding to your innocence? Curse God and die. But he said to her, Are you even going to speak out, senseless woman, do you do? We accept good things from God. Should we not accept evil? Through all this, Job said, Nothing sinful. So when things get tough in this world, don't be yelling and screaming at God. God allows evil so that good may come out of it. Yes, that's the principle. And when we come back, we'll talk more on the Bible with the Barbers on the Ten Commandments and how biblical they are and how the world is in desperate need of direction, of morality. They need, a, they need this more than ever. And here we are talking about the Ten Commandments, which are so important for all of us. Stay with us, family. Much more on the other side of the last break of the show. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Wow, back with the Barbers. Mary will be back next week. She's babysitting, so I'm filling in for her. We're talking about a brief summary of the Ten Commandments, you know, using the Bible. Now, the third commandment says, Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done then either by you or your son or daughter or your male or female slaves or your beast or by the alien who lives with you. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but on the seventh day he rested. This is why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." I read right from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. So what does the third commandment tell us to avoid? Well, the third commandment requires that we abstain from work, our business which impedes the worship to be given to God. The joy proper to the Lord's day or the proper relaxation to mind and body. These are questions that everybody should be asking. What sort of work should be avoided on Sundays? In holy days, whenever possible, we should avoid unnecessary work that requires primarily physical rather than mental labor. Is such work ever permitted on Sundays and holy days of obligation? Well, such work is permitted on Sunday and holy days if it is required by the glory of God, our own real need, or that of our neighbor. So, you know, for example... Your neighbor is in need 
you need to help repair something because she's a, a, a widower and shouldn't have her husband there. You go and help her on a Sunday. Act of charity. What are we commanded by the third commandment? By the third commandment, we're commanded to worship God on Sunday by participating in holy sacrifice of the Mass. A Saturday evening Mass may also be attended, right, to fulfill that obligation. What is, why is that too? I meant to, because it's the, it's the, it's Sunday really in the Jewish mindset after the sun goes down. So that's why we have vigils. The Mass, what is the Mass? Because this is really fundamental. And I've been encouraging people to get Bishop Snyder's book from us on our website at vmpr.org. But what is the Mass? Short uh, paragraph. Actually, a short sentence. The Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary made present on our altars so that we may share the benefits of redemption. A memorial of the death and resurrection of Christ, a sacred banquet in which Christ is received. So here's the question. What follows, what is the best way of participating in the holy sacrifice of the Mass? The best way of participating in the holy sacrifice is to offer to God in union with the priest, uniting oneself interiorly, externally with Christ, the victim, and by receiving him in holy communion. And we're in the state of grace. How is the unity of God's people expressed in the Mass? Good question. The unity of God's people is expressed by the actions of the faithful to pray, sing, and act together in the Mass. Most of all is expressed in receiving Holy Communion which is the center of the unity. Why is Sunday set aside as a special day? Sunday is set aside as a special day because of the tradition handed down from the apostles, which took its origin from the very day of Christ's resurrection. This bears the name of the Lord's Day on Sunday. Can we not worship God in our own hearts? You've heard that before. Instead of participating at Mass? No! <laughs> it's simple, right? Interior worship is not enough. God created man with both a body and soul. Hence, man must worship God with both, that is, interiorly and exteriorly. This worship also gives good examples to others. Moreover, by participating at Mass... With other believers, we glorify God as social beings. That's another aspect. What activities are especially suited to make Sunday a special day? Good question. Especially suited are activities which such renew our soul and body. For example, reading a good book, doing works of charity, cultivating our cultural interests, and wholesome recreation. Yep, like a good walk, some go to, you know, play some ball with the kids. What's the early church have to say? Acts of the Apostles, again, chapter 20. They, the first Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' instruction and communal life, to the breaking of bread and prayers. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered for the breaking of the bread, Paul preached to them, the Christians of Troas, because he intended to leave the next day. He kept on speaking until midnight. Whoa, long sermon, huh? As it had happened, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were assembled. Paul 
talked on and on, and a certain young lad who was sitting on the window still became drowsy. He fell asleep, right? He finally went uh, sound asleep and fell from the third story. Ouch! Yeah, he uh, he was he, he he fell from the third story to the ground. When they picked him up, he was dead. Paul hurried down immediately, threw himself on him, clutched the boy to himself. Don't be alarmed, he said to them. There is life in him. Afterwards, Paul went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. Then he talked for a long while until his departure at dawn. He talked the whole night. So don't complain when you have a 25-minute homily. (laughs) Did you hear that, Terry? To the great comfort of the people, they were able to take the boy alive away. And that's right in the Bible, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 to 12. Now, here's another quote from the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, Vatican II. By a tradition handed down by the apostles, which took its origin from the very day of the Lord's resurrection, the church celebrates the Paschal mystery every eighth day. With good reason, this then bears the name of the Lord's day or Sunday. For on this day, Christians, Christ's faithful, should come together into one place so that by hearing the word of God and taking part in the Eucharist, they may call to mind the passion, the resurrection, and the glorification of God, of Jesus Christ, and may thank God who has begotten him through the resurrection of Christ from the dead unto living hope. Hence, the Lord's day is the original feast day, and it should be proposed to the piety of the faithful and taught to them so that it may become, in fact, the day of joy and freedom from work. Well, amen to that. Let me see if I can get to the fourth commandment in the few minutes we have left. Fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Children, obey your children, your, your parents in the Lord. For this is what is expected of you. Honor your father and mother is the first commandment to carry out a promise with it that it may go well for you and that you may have a long life on the earth. And this is from Ephesians. Are you ready? Fathers, do not anger your children. Bring them up with training and instruction befitting the Lord. So what does the fourth commandment forbid? The fourth commandment forbids all disrespect, unkindliness, stubbornness, spitefulness, complaints, disobedience towards our parents, and lawful authorities. What does the fourth commandment oblige us to do? Hey, the fourth commandment obliges us to love our parents and lawful authorities to respect and obey them in all that is contrary to God's law and to help them in all their needs. What is the source and basis of parental authority? God himself. In the source of parental authority, and therefore children have a strict moral obligation to obey and care for their parents. How do parents show their love and respect for their parents? Children show their love and respect for their parents when they speak and act with gratitude and try to please them, readily accepting correction, seeking advice in important decisions, and patiently bear with their parents' faults. And you need to pray for your parents. Are we obliged to respect and obey others besides our parents? Yes! Besides our parents, the fourth commandment teaches us to respect and obey our teachers, our lawful, superior, civil, ecclesial, 
when they're discharged their official duties in conformity with the law of God. You notice what I said? In conformity with the law of God. Are children obliged to obey their parents about their choice in the state and life? Children should ordinarily ask their parents' advice about their choice of their state and life, but they are not obliged to follow their parents' advice. Parents must not force their children into their choice of a state or life or prevent them from fulfilling their vocation. Last thing, what are the duties of the parents towards their children? Parents must have their children baptized within a few weeks after birth. It's canon law. Provided their material welfare instruction for them, give them Christian education, correct their defaults, train them with words and example in the practice of Christian virtue, counsel them in forming a moral conscience. Right? And then how can parents fulfill their obligations? Parents can fulfill their special responsibility by keeping the family strong, united to them by prayer, family sacrifice, and family liturgy. Yeah, read the Bible every night to the kids. Yes. What are some of the duties of workmen towards their employer? Some duties of workmen towards their employer are to serve them faithfully and honestly and to guard them against to the property and good name of their employer. Yeah, that's an obligation. You haven't heard that for a while, have you? What are some of the duties of employers to their workers? Hey, employers must see to it that their workers are fairly and justly treated and that their wages are justly paid. Wow. Are we obliged to obey civil law when they are contrary to God's law? If the civil law citizens violate the law of God, we must refuse to obey them, for we must obey God rather than man. We just had that reading from Acts chapter 5, verse 29. And then, what are the duties of a citizen towards his country? The principal duties of a citizen are to respect civil authority and obey the just laws. You notice I said just? That is consistently fulfilled for all civil duties. What are those principal duties? We'll talk more the next time. I just want to say I enjoy teaching, can you tell, the commandments, because this is something we've kind of forgotten in our church. So you can take this podcast, send it to your kids, say, hey, there's a bald-headed old guy named Terry Barber who wanted to share the Ten Commandments. This is my first segment. I got like four in, six more to go. So I want to thank all of you again listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, Bible with the Barbers. My wife, Mary Danielle, will be back next week. You can check out all of our shows by going to vmpr.org. The podcasts are up for you to listen to at your convenience. May God richly bless you. And don't forget, this is May 13th. Our Lady of Fatima tells us the Rosary, Eucharist, and World Peace are all connected. Remember, Our Lady said souls are going to hell because no one is there to pray and make sacrifices. It's a very biblical teaching. Sacrifice is the language of love. May God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>